Thank you. Thank you, Derek. And thank you for coming to this event and thank you for the invitation uh, on such a special day um, where we are, have mixed feelings, obviously, about Madiba's illness, but to still be able to celebrate together uh, what he stands for and his vision, which had a big impact on my own life. Uh, and I think it will be appropriate to say a bit about that today. But what we thought we would do is um, for me to start off by giving you a bit of a sense of, of the reconciliation journey that I've been on. Uh, and since we're talking about connecting at the human level, we're not going to start with, with the big picture. Uh, if you want to go there, we can talk about the bigger picture. But I think we both felt it's appropriate that we start with our personal journey, that we start at a very human level and share with you some of that journey and some of the challenges we faced and are still facing. So I will start uh, by speaking a bit about uh, my own reconciliation journey. And then after that, Alistair will, will speak. And we'll try and keep it relatively short, 20 minutes, half an hour max. And uh, somebody might need to help us to make sure that we, we stick to not more than half an hour uh, per person so that we have at least an hour or so for, for interaction with you. Because it's really in the questions and in the exploring of, of the questions that you are sitting with and that we have been grappling with, I'm sure that we will, we will generate some, some wisdom together. So that's, that's the plan really for the time. Is that, is that okay? Uh, Alistair will be speaking with a Northern Irish accent. And we were in a meeting two days ago. And the first few minutes, people struggled a bit to, to get used to the accent. But if you, if you hang in there and if you cannot follow at all, Perhaps just raise your hand because that will help Alistair to just slow down. Um, he already does that very well. But, but in case you are really struggling with the accent, it might be helpful just to help us initially at least to, to, um, to, to be aware of that. And in terms of questions, please feel free um, to ask what you feel you really need to ask. If it is quite personal, we, we don't mind the questions that people want to explore. Um, if, you, if you feel you want to ask something, please feel free to do that. So that's the spirit in which we want to hopefully also connect with you at quite a human level. Um, I can see in the audience that we have people of sort of different generations. And I've been away for 12 years now. And I found that since coming back, since December, I've been based in, uh, in South Africa, again, just outside Stellenbosch. And I find that when I work with, with younger people, uh, the sort of the born free generation, so-called, um, that sometimes the history doesn't have the same resonance, the same meaning. Uh, because I've become used in my earlier life, also before leaving and working in a different context, that, that the family name that I have when somebody is introduced or when I'm introduced as Wilhelm Verwurt, uh, especially for black South Africans, it comes with a lot of baggage. It comes with a lot of pain uh, and a lot of difficulty to even be in the same room as somebody coming from the family of the person that was seen really as the personification of the system of apartheid, the architect of apartheid. So I think it's appropriate for me to name that from the start. And, and if there's younger people who might not have that same resonance, uh, please bear with me because I think I'll start really from the start in terms of where I grew up and, and say something about that family background. Uh, and then say something about really where, where Madiba, where, where, where Mandela really has uh, helped me a lot uh, amongst many other people to, to deal with that legacy in a, in a constructive way. Because when I grew up, I mean, and this is now a long time ago in the 60s, um, it was very different to what things are today. Um, 
it, I mean, for those of you who've been to Stellenbosch, I don't know if anybody has been there, but it, it in many ways is, is quite similar. I mean, there's, there's been changes, but you can still come to the neighborhood where I grew up, and it would still be predominantly Afrikaans speaking, predominantly white, predominantly middle class. And when you come to my parents' home, you will still, as, as you walk in through the front door, you will still see the big, the big um, picture, the big painting of my grandfather, just as you enter. So even today, his presence is, is very strong in that family home that I, that I grew up in. Um, and I was very much part of that, that family, that community, the Afrikaner nationalist Dutch Reformed Church, uh, white community. Uh, and during the 60s, I mean, it's the heyday of apartheid we're talking about. And at that time, as a young person growing up, the people that I mixed with were predominantly white Afrikaans-speaking people. And in that community, the name had a very positive meaning. And I know this must be difficult to, to believe if you come from a, a black South African background. But people were saying to me, people at the schools, at the church where I was, some, sometimes just random people you meet on the street, they would say how proud you should be to have this great man as your grandfather. Because for them and for my community where I came from, he was seen as somebody who brought us political freedom um, from what was seen as English domination. And that goes back to the Anglo-Boer War and a lot of history that, that predates, as it were, the, the formal apartheid system. But he was seen as somebody who, during the 50s and in, then in the early 60s, helped South Africa to achieve, or helped Afrikaners to achieve this ideal of a republic outside the British Commonwealth. And that was seen as a great day of, of celebration. So that's the one thing people used to say to me. The other thing that many people used to say was that on the day that he was assassinated, people would say, this is what I was doing. They would talk about exactly how they remember that moment when they heard the news that Dr. Verwurt was assassinated in Parliament. And many of them would say how that, for them, was a day of great mourning, was a day of great sadness. The other day I was talking to my mother and she was just saying how during the state funeral, because there were hundreds of thousands of people here in the streets of Pretoria, and she could remember seeing the, the, the young soldiers, the white soldiers, standing you know, in line for the state cavalcade to come past, and how the tears were coming down their faces. Now, again, that must be very difficult to, to relate to if you come from a, from a black South African background, but, but that was the reality that I grew up in. Um, very much part of this Afrikaner, sense of, of history, a sense of coming from the Anglo-Boer War background, even though it was 50 years before I was born. Uh, the, the, the stories we, we heard as young people, the history we were taught at school, uh, wasn't so much about conflict between white and black South Africans. That was not the focus. The focus was the conflict between Afrikaans-speaking and English-speaking South Africans. And the games we played at school, the, the tensions we had, you know, part of the voortrekkers and part of the sort of cultural organizations at school and also part of the military mindset that we, that we grew up with. Very much, you know, buying into that sense of we have to go, you know, accept that we have to fight within the South African Defense Force and that this was about protecting our community and our culture and it was fighting against what was perceived as a communist onslaught. It wasn't really articulated as an ANC liberation struggle. It was, it was portrayed very effectively as, as, a, as, as a communist onslaught that was also religious 
in, its, in the threat that it posed to us as, as white Afrikaner, Christian, uh, Dutch Reformed Church, South Africans. So I bought into that, that mindset and, and was part of that. And I can remember brothers and friends going to the army. I couldn't go because I had a, a sports injury. But I still had this, this really acceptance of that security mindset, the Afrikaner sort of tribal mindset, and, and a sense of pride in, in the family that I came from and, and a specific sense of pride in my grandfather. And I'm cutting a long story short here. And you can imagine that that, that, that couldn't be sustained. Um, and I was lucky in retrospect to get an opportunity to go and study overseas. And I'm not sure how quickly things would have changed if I stayed within South Africa in the mid-80s. Things were very hectic and very tense as people know, who lived through that. Uh, and I, in retrospect, I was probably lucky to get an opportunity to, to study overseas uh, in Holland and in England. And for the first time, I was away from, from this cocoon of, of, of beauty and privilege within white Afrikaner Dutch Reformed Church Stellenbosch, away from the professors of the university, the, pre, the, the ministers at the church, away from family and friends, and the people who were providing the sense of of justification and support for the way we looked at, at what was going on in South Africa. And I remember arriving and getting ready to go and, and study in, in Holland and then in England and going with this huge backpack, you know, a huge backpack filled not only with clothes but also with food like biscuit and biltong and all the stuff that I wasn't sure whether we would get proper food in Holland and in England and these liberal places where I was going to study. I also remember taking Afrikaans theology books and Afrikaans philosophy books because I wasn't sure about this philosophy and theology I was going to study uh, in England. And literally I had these books and clothes and whatever in my backpack and in two big suitcases. And I remember struggling through the streets of, of Utrecht to get to the place where I was going to stay for three months with this heavy, heavy backpack and these two heavy suitcases. And looking back again, I found that, that image, that, that, that arrival with all this baggage very metaphorical. <coughs> because what had to happen in the next three years that I was studying in Holland, especially in Holland for three months and then three years in England, was gradually to be confronted by that, uh, to be confronted about that, bag that baggage that I was carrying. And gradually, over time, it was a sense of, of getting rid of some of that baggage. And that was a painful process. And that was a process that really boiled down to being in a house for a couple of months with a bunch of students, including black South Africans, people of color. Also white South Africans, Afrikaans-speaking white South Africans who were ANC supporters. And this was at the time, mid-80s, Holland, anti-apartheid, like very strong public media. So wherever you go, in terms of the media, I was bombarded with information about what was really going on in the townships in South Africa, which we were not really shown on South African television at the time. So all these images were coming from through the media. And in the house that I was living, I was having these intense conversations with people who, some of them from my own community background, some of them from the communities who were on the receiving end of apartheid. And there came a point where it wasn't about arguing anymore. It wasn't about you know, big debates. It was really about people telling me their stories. Often with anger, 
often with a lot of sadness about what was done to their communities, to the land that they grew up in, the way in which people were systematically humiliated on a daily basis within the apartheid context. And just beginning through those life stories, through those, the willingness of people to open up a window on what they really experience under this system, <coughs> I started to see a different, a different South Africa. And a South Africa that I could not reconcile with the South Africa that I grew up in. And again, I was confronted with people saying, you know, on the day, on the day that your grandfather was assassinated, we ran into the streets and we took off our shirts and we danced because it was a day of liberation. So on the one hand, I had these memories of people talking about the day of sadness, the day of loss. On the other hand, there were people who were talking about a day of liberation. And the challenge for me was, how do you bring these two worlds together? How do you make sense of, of a reality where, on the one hand, people see somebody as this hero, and on the other hand, people see him really as, as one of the key people responsible for, for the extensive suffering that people experienced. And that was really a, a journey of truth and reconciliation, a journey of facing painful truths about what my community, my family, our church, what we were involved in. And it got to a point uh, where it almost felt like I needed to just run away from all of that, where every, every source of identity was attached to some so, was attached to suffering and pain and guilt and all those issues that that is brought up by facing some of those painful histories, and the irony was that it was actually black South Africans, ANC supporters, during that time when I was studying in England, who were saying to me that in our culture, we are not expecting people to disrespect their ancestors. In our culture, we respect our ancestors. The question is not about you running away from who you are. We're not expecting you to stop being a fervurt, stop being white, stop being Afrikaner. That's who you are. The question is, are you willing to work with us to build a society where everybody can be at home and everybody can be treated with dignity and with respect? And gradually, that helped me to come to a point of saying, yes, you cannot change. I can't change the color of my skin. This is who I am. I can't change the fact that I come from this Afrikaner Christian community. And I cannot change the fact that I come from this particular family. And all the baggage and the symbolism and the pain that that represents. What I can change is what I do with that. And what I do with my life, having realized what actually has happened in this beautiful, violent country that we live in. And that's where uh, Madiba really played an important role. Because I, at that point, I got to a sense of, I really need to reach out to him, and, and specifically to him at, at the time when he was just released. I was still in England. And I wrote a letter in which I was trying to express my sense of shared responsibility for what happened. I obviously couldn't say that I accept responsibility for what my grandfather did in my community and my family. But I can say I can accept responsibility for my own involvement, my own acceptance, my own complicity, my own support. And I want to devote my life to working for reconciliation. And I sent this letter, hoping that he would reach, he would, he would uh, receive the letter. Um, I don't think he did, because a few years later, I went back to Stellenbosch, 1991. At that point, I was considering uh, joining the ANC, but wasn't sure because of obvious reasons in terms of worrying about family and worrying about conflict uh, in the community as well. But there was a small meeting at Stellenbosch where there was an opportunity 
uh, there was like a handful of people who were expressing an interest in what the ANC was about and specifically wanted to meet Madiba. And, and because of the family surname and because of the history, I got an opportunity to for a moment just speak with him. And what I wanted to do was use that opportunity to convey my sense of, of sorrow for what really was done to him in terms of being put in prison and, and everything that was really done uh, in the name also of my own family and my own community. And as I started to speak, he actually said, just wait a minute, I just want to say something first. And as I remembered it, he said, can I first ask you, how is your grandmother? And I was just like really taken aback because I was not expecting that question. Here is somebody who's been in prison for 27 years, basically asking about the well-being of the wife of the person who was at the sense at the, was the leader at the time when he was put in prison. And it wasn't, it didn't come across as a sort of just a, a gesture. It came across as something that was genuine. And he went on to say, if you don't mind, would you please convey my greetings to your grandmother? And we know that a few years later, he went himself to Urania to have tea with Betsy Ferwurt. And during that conversation, he also said, let's work together to, to not get stuck in the past. Yes, we need to deal with it. We need to be honest about it. But let's find ways to work together to build this South Africa where we can all be at home, as, as, as Albert Lutuli's vision expressed. And that was a critical moment. So at that point, that was the last straw, where it was clear to me we need to get involved. It wasn't good enough to, to just talk about reconciliation. It wasn't good enough to talk about it generally. In my own life, it felt I needed to make a commitment. And that really started this journey of of getting involved with the ANC and then getting involved with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission as part of a, a bigger process of trying to find ways to face some painful truths, but not for the sake of those truths themselves and not for the sake of some kind of masochistic obsession with the past, but a way of, of working through those truths so that we could come to a point where at a very human level we can authentically connect with each other, not just politically, but at a deeper level. That, that's for me what that vision uh, was about. Um, and of course the TRC had lots of problems and there's lots of issues we can discuss, but I think the vision behind it was to say we cannot trust the courts only. We can't only make these big political changes. At a human level we need to connect. Um, and, and that's really what the journey has been since then. Uh, the TRC was, was the start of a, a process where I really wanted to learn how to work practically to bring people together who come from deeply divided backgrounds. And shortly after that, there was an opportunity to go for a few years to Ireland and Northern Ireland, which I was very interested in because of my studies uh, earlier in England. Um, and I was hoping to get an opportunity to work with the conflict in that context, where race is not the center of the conflict, but where people come from deep, deep histories of deep division. And really, that's where, where the journey you know, with Alistair started. Um, because early on in my time uh, in Ireland, uh, I met Alistair uh, at an event at Glen Cree. And really from there on, from 2001, I think it was October 2001, we've been on a journey together. And obviously Alistair will say more about his journey. Um, but together we've been, we've been working at, at developing processes that, that, that can encourage people to go into a place 
where you can take risks, where you can be vulnerable in a way where you can go below the surface and connect at a very deep human level. But not just for the sake of it, not just as a goal in itself, but so that we can actually cultivate relationships that can sustain how we can build a different kind of society where we do not have to go back to violence and go back to dehumanization. And that's where the journey through conflict process really sort of grew from the work that we, we did in a different context. And we're now at a stage where we, we have opportunities to work with people in a few different conflict areas. And I find that very humbling and very encouraging to see that in different contexts, whether it's Israel and Palestine, whether it's working with veterans in an American context, whether it's working in Northern Ireland, or whether it's working here in South Africa, there is something profound about that challenge about connecting at the human level. Yes, there's lots of differences culturally and politically and historically, but in a sense, it's, it's as simple as that, that we need to figure out creative ways to not only connect at the human level, but to cultivate those connections over time. And that takes a lot of commitment. It takes a lot of willingness to be vulnerable, willingness to take risks, and a willingness to, to run a comrades marathon and not to go for a sprint, because that really is what, what this kind of work is about. So I think that's enough in terms of just to give you a sense of where I'm coming from when I talk about connecting at the human level. And I think I want to hand over to Alistair uh, to give you a sense just about his journey, and then, and then we open up to, to, to questions from the floor. So thank you for listening. So please let me know um, if I'm talking too fast. Um, just raise your hand. Um, I just want to start by saying, on the back of what Wilhelm said, for me, the, the most difficult part of this work is about being honest with yourself about what lies within you as a human being and facing your own demons, your own prejudice, your own hatred, your own bitterness and owning it. Um, and for me, that's, that's the most difficult part of this work and of my own journey. I grew up in a Christian home. I wasn't exposed in the home to sectarian comments, bitterness or hatred about the other, which in, in my case was about Republicans, Nationalists, Catholics. I grew up in a, in a Protestant, Unionist, Loyalist uh, community, British, um, not English, but British with a strong connection to Scotland. So my parents wouldn't have tolerated uh, conversations or comments in the home uh, that was about Catholics or Nationalists or Republicans. But certainly at the schools that I went to, um, school teachers um, would have turned the collars of their coats over and there would have been paramilitary badges uh, behind them. I would have attended political rallies where politicians and religious people would have talked about fighting and dying um, and about your way of life being under threat. My hometown was destroyed twice by bombs. A number of friends that I went to school with, their fathers had been shot uh, 
because they belonged to a, a regiment within the British Army. One of them was uh, one of my best friends. His father was shot dead. His young sister, who was 11 years old, it was shot in the legs trying to get in between the gunmen. I went to the funeral when they brought my friend's father's coffin out. His young sister started screaming for her daddy. I remember crying. I remember being embarrassed at crying because at 14 that's not something boys were supposed to do in terms of the culture that I grew up in about showing your emotion. So there was a sense of fear as I was growing up. Um, a sense of fear as you were walking the streets um, that you could be a target, that your family could be a target, that your father or your brothers could be killed. Also in terms of as a young person growing up, that need for a sense of belonging, a sense of feeling important. And the paramilitary organizations provided that, that sense of belonging, that sense of specialness that, that many young girls, but mostly young boys, needed of feeling important about wanting to do something to protect your community. And certainly with conversations that I've had with Republicans, that was the same for the young men that were growing up in their community. But by the time that I had got involved in the paramilitary organizations, um, I had a, a total demonization of the enemy, of the other. I felt superior. Uh, I felt that they weren't as human as I was. I would not have recognized their suffering. I was very much aware of the suffering of my people, but indifferent to the suffering of those that I seen as the enemy. So at the age of 14, I joined a paramilitary organization, which was the UVF, the Ulster Volunteer Force, which was a secret organization, uh, extreme in terms of the violence that they were prepared to use. By the age of 16, I was in charge of a small group of five men and two females. Uh, a total hatred of the enemy. And at that stage there was probably absolutely nothing that I wouldn't have done um, and I wouldn't have questioned uh, my actions. I had a strong sense that, that God was a Protestant and that he was therefore on our side. And that notion that God's on our side, we're the good guys, the enemy are the bad guys, it helped me in terms of my conscience uh, if I questioned some of the things that I was doing, I simply was able to say to myself, if God's on our side and we're the good guys, at the end of the day, things will be okay between me and God. Um, I went to prison at the age of 17. My involvement in violence and involvement in the organization that I belonged to was a very human response. There were not too many on either side of the conflict, young men between the ages of 14 to 17, that would have had a well-defined political ideology. It was very much a human response to what they were seeing around them, what they were witnessing in terms of suffering of their people, suffering of their community, <laughs> suffering of their friends and their family members. And I wanted to do something about it at that very human level.
Often in prison, the, a lot of the politicization is where that happened. And in many cases, that can sometimes be retrospectively applied when you ask people about why they got involved in violence. They want it simply to be about politics. And they feel that in some way that that politicizing their violence brings legitimacy to it. And in many senses that is true for them, but also we need to look at the human response uh, and why we get involved in violence as human beings, why we believe that that's the only way forward. I served uh, 13 years in prison. Probably for the first five or six years in prison, I was reasonably content. I was in prison with men who were in for similar offences for protecting their community. Um, we were in a, in a uh, we were political prisoners, so we we basically ran the prison. Uh, it was like a uh, an old army camp with watchtowers and razor wire. Um, we had our our uniforms. We had our own commanders within the prison, uh, and we we basically run the prison. We paraded in the prison. And we were segregated and separated from the, from from, from the, those that were our enemy. After about uh, five or six years of being in prison, as I began to mature and began to study in prison about, especially about conflict and what the human cost of violent conflict uh, was, I began to read about other conflicts around the world, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, what was happening in South Africa. And I was very much aware that we had, as loyalists, we had received weapons from South Africa. Uh, well, yes, from, from the apartheid regime. Um, during our conflict, so I was very much aware of that. And it's a case of that, in terms of that your friend's enemy is your enemy. That's how we would have, we would have understood that. And we would also have been quite supportive of the Israeli uh, conflict uh, and still in Northern Ireland today there's places where you'll go and you'll see Israeli flags being flown and in Republican areas you'll see Palestinian flags being flown and uh, both Phil Hallam and I have worked in that region and both work with Israeli soldiers and Palestinian fighters and, and former prisoners um, there was a number of things that happened in prison and when I went into prison I had been completely desensitized to the violence that I was using um, and started to recognize that that violence uh, had also dehumanized me and desensitized me. Uh, Bobby Sands, who died on hunger strike, who was an IRA prisoner, uh, someone who I would have killed if I got a chance and he would have killed me. A few days after he died and there was 10 uh, ten of the Republican prisoners who died on the hunger strike. A few days after he had died, I was taken on a visit. Uh, and they take you to the visits in an enclosed van. And there were guards in the van that were laughing because Bobby Sands had died. And one of them was rubbing his hands and said, I can't wait till the next one dies. And I remember it sent me into a fit of rage and I remember saying to them, Bobby Sands has more courage than you'll ever have. And I remember thinking later that evening, uh, about why, why did I say that? Why was I defending Bobby Sands, someone who was my enemy? 
And I remember asking myself the question, could you do what Bobby Sands had done? Could you starve yourself to death for something that you believed in? And although I was mature, I was still quite young. So often it's the ego that sort of answers those questions rather than your intelligence. And so my initial response was, yes, of course, you know, I can do anything that the enemy does and I can do it better. But in my heart, I knew that the answer was no. And I came to the realization that no matter what Bobby Sands stood for, what he did or didn't do in my community, uh, I recognized that it takes courage for a human being to starve themselves to death. And in recognizing his courage, I was recognizing his humanity. I was recognizing him as a human being. And that was one of the catalysts. There were many, but that was one of the catalysts that helped to rekindle my own humanity by acknowledging the suffering of the enemy and seeing them as fully human. Which meant that then I had to look inside myself and start to face my own demons, my own prejudice, my own hatred, my own bitterness. I had to start questioning some of my thoughts, some of my beliefs, some of my actions. And often in that place, it's a lonely place. It's a wilderness. There's a sense of betrayal of who you are as a human being. There's a sense that you're betraying your comrades, betraying all that you stand for, simply by being willing to consider, not necessarily accept, but in the early stages, even the willingness to consider the suffering of your enemy felt like a betrayal. And that's how, how deep the conditioning had been in our minds about people who were different to me. People who had different religious beliefs, cultural, political aspirations. Where that, that difference uh, was so frightening that you grew up where f- difference was something to be feared. Rather than recognizing as I do today that difference is something that c- can enrich your life. That can make you a better person. So when I left prison, I was convinced that violence was not something that I wanted to choose to be a part of my life. I'm not a pacifist. Um, But violence is not something that I want to choose to be a part of my life. And I don't want to use violence to pursue my political aspirations. I want to do that democratically. And that means the willingness that, that when people vote, Uh, They may vote for things that I necessarily don't want or don't like. But if I'm a true Democrat, I have to accept that. And that's also difficult and painful. And it's emotionally difficult and painful to look inside yourself as a human being and, and touch the darkness that's inside you and know what you're capable of as a human being. And I would meet a lot of people that have this notion that they don't have the capacity for violence. And I believe that as human beings, we all have the capacity for violence, depending on what circumstances we find ourselves. That's not a justification for me for the violence that I used. It's just, for me, a reality in the context in which I live and work. So most of my time now I spend in life histories or storytelling, bringing people from different conflicts together, Uh, who've been on uh, opposing sides. 
and not focusing on the politics, but focusing on on what has been the human cost um, for those people that are involved in that conflict. Uh.